Good morning. So I have, I've been enjoying our sermon series. I have been really enjoying um, learning more about the various um, people who have written the texts of our hymns. And, um, and, but this person this week, Charles Albert Tenley, I actually uh, learned about him in seminary. He has made quite a mark in the history of our denomination. And so to really set the stage well for his story, I need to take us back in American history as well as uh, Methodist history. So um, the Methodist movement uh, started with the Wesleys in the 1700s, and and it came across the ocean with uh, British immigrants to our country here, to the the colonies at the time, and um, spread up and down, starting... the first people getting off, most of them got off in Baltimore Harbor and started the spread and, and went northward and, and then some into the south. Now, um, in the 1770s, a major event happened in our nation's history. Um, and I, I hope you're remembering. So we had the, the uh, right, the War for Independence. And during that war, all of the uh, Episcopal... Uh, Anglican priests went home. They went back to England, so there was nobody here to administer the sacraments um, who had been, uh, you know, for the people who were Anglican. And so uh, uh, John Wesley sent two people um, over to the states, uh, to the colonies at the time during that war. Um, He sent two people over to uh, be able to administer baptism and holy communion and, and to do marriages, Christian marriage. And, um, and so the Methodist movement um, was thriving, and so the Methodist denomination actually began as a denomination in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, over in England, it was a movement within the Anglican church, but with the, with the split of our countries also came the split of the church. And... Um, they founded a church on Christmas Day in uh, 1784. And when they founded the church, um, one of the basic principles that was in the original um, articles and, and the, the first book of discipline and the early book of discipline was that you could not be a member of the Methodist church, the Methodist societies and the Methodist Episcopal church. You could not be a member if you were a slave owner. Um, Wesley had had an abhorrence for slavery and particularly how slavery was practiced in the Americas. And so, um, so you couldn't be a member uh, of the Methodist societies if you were a slave owner. And, um, and so that's what it was for a while. And then in the early 1800s, um, as the Methodist societies started moving south, there were more and more people who wanted to be part of the Methodist societies because they really liked the Methodist societies, except for that one part about being slave owners, because, of course, in the South, there were many slave owners. And so, um, so at one of the general conferences, they took that line out. So now you could be a Methodist and be a slave owner, and so that made people happy. Um, and we had, you know, growing up and down the South, not the blacks necessarily, but it made people happy in the churches. Um, and then they started having segregated, so the blacks could be up in the balcony and such. And, um, but then came a moment when... Um, uh, Free blacks wanted to go to worship, and they were told they had to be segregated. They said, forget this, and they went and started their own denomination. 
And there came a moment when there was at General Conference a thing saying, you know, we can't have slave owners. That's just wrong. We've got to not have slave owners. And so the denomination split. So now we have um, the Methodist Episcopal Church and then the Methodist Episcopal Church South. And guess what? The South could own slaves, but the people in the North couldn't. And then we had another denomination, the um, African Methodist Episcopal Church, and that was the blacks who'd gone to worship and told they had to sit up in the balcony, and so they started their own denomination. Then in the South, they wanted their slaves to be able to go to church, but they didn't want them in the same building, so they started the CME, at the time Colored Methodist Episcopal Church, now it's the Christian Methodist Episcopal Church, so that the blacks had some place to go to worship, and the AME Church had to split itself, so it became AME and AME Zion, and we had the Methodist Episcopal and the Methodist Episcopal Church South. Some of you might be saying, that's too much, that's too boggling. But let me just say that in this area, many of the churches here came from the Methodist Episcopal Church South. Our mother church out at Academy was founded from pastor, a circuit writer from the Methodist Episcopal Church South, who came out in the 1860s. Um, Albert, Charles Albert, Charles Albert Tinley was born in 1851, okay? So he was born, he was born in Maryland. He was born in a state that had slaves. But his family attended a Methodist Episcopal church. So it was um, not, I'm not going to say it's integrated, but at least the philosophy would be integrated, um, in that church. They didn't attend a, a, a CME or a South. They attended Methodist Episcopal Church in Maryland in 1851, July 7th, 1851. He was born. And his father um, was a slave and his mother was free. His father's name was Charles or Albert, depending on which record you hold. So I think and his father was probably Charles Albert, and that's why his son was Charles Albert Tinley, right? His mother's name was Hester, and uh, she was free, and so because his mom was free, he was free. But at a very young age, his mother died. If his father would take him and raise him, that would make him a slave. So his mother's sister, his aunt, adopted him and raised him. And she lived nearby, so he did get to still see and know his dad and and such, but he wasn't able to be with his dad because that would make him become a slave. 1851. At the age of 10, 1861, the Civil War began. It lasted for about four years, so in 1865 was the Emancipation Proclamation. He was 14 years old. But it didn't apply to him because Maryland had not seceded from the Union. It was a slave state, but it had stayed with the North. The Emancipation Proclamation applied to the states that had seceded. And so even though emancipation had been given to the southern states, he was what they call one of the border states. And those states had to, on their own, make a decision to eradicate slavery. And that wouldn't happen in Maryland for another year or two before the state voted to change its constitution. So now he's like 16 or 17. So all of this time, 
he was not allowed to go to school. He was not allowed to be formally educated. So as a child, since he wasn't in school, he, he was hired out. Sometimes he worked with his father. Sometimes he worked in a Quaker community nearby. But he earned money and helped to support the family. Didn't go to school, but he did find people who would tutor him. And he had such an amazing mind. He was so sharp and insightful. And so he was able to learn to read and write. And, and, and at 17, when he was finally able to start going to school and college, then he began to look for ways to receive a more formal training. Also at 17, he married um, Daisy Henry, Daisy Henry, who uh, was his wife for many years. Um, and he and Daisy, um, shortly after their marriage, not exactly sure when, um, because records of blacks are not well kept from the mid-1800s, but they, they moved to Philadelphia, a city of brotherly love in, a, um, in the northern state of Pennsylvania, right? Um, and they became involved in Bainbridge Street Methodist Episcopal Church. Um, by 1875, he and Daisy had three children, and uh, he went to work as a hod carrier. How many people here know what a hod carrier is? Oh, lots of people, yes. Okay, so he was a hod carrier for his profession, and after being in the church a while, he also became sexton of the church. How many people know what that is, the sexton of the church? Oh, cool, lots of people. So, um, yeah, so if you don't know, uh, so a, if you don't know, a hod carrier, like, carries the tools and stuff for the, for the builders, particularly working with brick and stuff, but they, they carry, they assist the, the builders. And, um, and the sexton uh, is custodian of the property, so kind of serves as a janitor overseer of the property of the church. And so um, he didn't really get paid for that, but he did get paid for being the hod carrier, and that's how he supported his family. And then he began taking night school. Um, he took night school at a, a local uh, college, um, Bible college, because um, he started feeling this pull to ordain ministry. He's about 24 at this time. He started feeling called to ordain ministry. And so he wanted to get more formal training. So he was able to go to some classes at the Bible college and, um, around the street down, uh, around the corner down the street was a synagogue. And so he talked with the rabbi there and, and had the rabbi teach him Hebrew. So he learned Hebrew. And then he started taking correspondence courses from Boston University School of Theology. And he learned Greek through that and, um, and took other courses as well. Now, if you're a person with a good memory, you might remember that we are now on the fourth Sunday of our sermon series. The first week was Georgia Harkness and then the Strathies. Last week was Ruth Duck and now we're on Char Charles Albert Tinley. Georgia Harkness, Ruth Duck, and now Charles Albert Tinley, all of them received training from Boston University School of Theology, which is a Methodist institution at that time. Amazing, only the Strathys haven't gone there. I didn't know that when I planned the sermon series, but apparently BU has a very long and proud history with our denomination um, from, the, from the 1800s until the present time. So anyway, he, he learned Greek from that. So he, he was proficient in Greek and Hebrew, and, and he took all his classes in the evenings while he was still working, supporting his family, and having more children with Daisy. And all, they ended up with eight children. Um, 
However, in 1882, his daughter, uh, well, in 1881, his daughter Hester was born. Um, Remember, his mom's name was Hester, and so he named his daughter Hester after his mom. But she died the following year in 1882. At just one year old, she got pneumonia and croup, and she died from that, which is kind of sad because his mom died when he was young, and then his daughter named for her died when she was just one year old. In about 1885, then, he completed his um, training and was ready to take the test. Now, in those days, people who went to seminary, it wasn't a lot of people who went to seminary. Um, It was a growing number, but it wasn't really common. And so how people were tested to see if they were um, uh, prepared to be appointed as pastors was the first day of annual conference session, they would be tested, literally tested. And you didn't take your tests in seminary and get your grades. You took your test at the end of conference session. And so everybody who went to seminary, wherever they went, and then they came on that first day of annual conference session and took their tests, and he showed up to take his tests, like many others. Um, however, he was about the oldest in there at 35. And, you know, others who had gone to school and college and gotten their, they're in their mid-20s taking their tests, and he's in his mid-30s, and, and he's self-taught. He's no degree with him, no seminary, official, formal seminary training, and, and so people c- kind of made fun of him. He wasn't very wealthy, you know, working as a hog carrier, wasn't a really wealthy guy, so he was ridiculed and belittled when he came in to take his tests. However, he scored at the top of the group testing. Very smart man, very smart man. And so he was appointed to serve a church. Initially, he served in uh, Delaware and later to New Jersey and down into Maryland and then back up into Philadelphia. In 1900, in 1900, he was appointed that he was back then they tend to move people every two years. Three was a long time. So about every two years they moved him. And so in 1900, he got appointed for a two-year Uh, term to be the district superintendent of of the area two years and then in 1902 he was appointed back into philadelphia to bainbridge street methodist episcopal church that's the church where he had been the custodian remember and now he comes back as their pastor at the time there was about 130 people in the congregation and um, he began his work there and by 1904 they they needed to move because their facility was not really big enough for them. And so they moved um, a few blocks away to another location and they um, renamed themselves from Bainbridge Street to East Calvary Methodist Episcopal Church. And so um, while he was at East Calvary, the congregation continued to grow. And it, and it grew in ways that were um, uh, interracial, multi-ethnic group growing in his congregation. Now, around in this time also was a um, general conference in which they were going to elect a bishop, and his name was lifted up as a candidate for bishop. Um, But there were some who didn't want this not-seminary-educated man to become bishop. They felt he didn't have literally the, the papers to prove his worth. And so there started some rumors kind of around the back way that undermined his credibility and, and actually damaged his relationship with his colleagues and um, were, was very hurtful, very hurtful to him and also tanked his chance to become a bishop. 
Um, but his congregation knew the truth of who he was and, and what his worth was. And, and he went back to pastor in his congregation, and, and it began to continue to grow and to thrive. Um, so about 1909, the congregation bought another facility, moved from their home where they'd become East Calvary, moved to another home that had been a Presbyterian church and uh, seating for 900. And so they moved there um, and they continued to grow. But also in 1909, his uh, daughter, Irene, um, died from tuberculosis that year. She was 13, and she contracted tuberculosis and died. And so while the congregation continued to grow and thrive, he had yet another deep loss in his home. At their new location, the congregation began to grow and to grow and to grow and decided that they needed to build a whole new place that was even bigger. And so they built, um, they built a, new, a new facility and they moved into that in 1924. In 1924, his wife Daisy also died just before completion of the new building. And so they moved into the new building and dedicated it um, shortly after his wife's death while he was still in deep grief. Um, And he lived uh, another nine years. Um, He remarried in 1927 um, to uh, Jenny Cotton. And they were married for about five years. And uh, in 1933, he, he had an injury on his foot. And um, gangrene set in, and that infected his body. And he died at the age of 82. Uh, yeah, 81, 82. Um, July the 26th, almost the anniversary date. Um, which means he remarried at the age of 77. Some other people I know who have found love later in life, huh? Yeah. All of that makes an interesting story, but what what you need to really hear in all this and what you need to see in the hymns is the immense struggle and the immense hardship and pain that this man faced throughout the whole of his life and yet the depth of his faith. The the power of hope, the the sure knowledge that God is faithful and God will provide. So he's born in the midst of slavery time. He loses his mother early. He can't live with his father. He's not allowed to be educated. He, He is shunned because he's not allowed to get formal education. He is paid for menial labor to to provide for his family so he didn't provide well there's actually a story of a time when there was no food in the house none no food in the house nothing in the cupboards nothing to feed the family and he said daisy i want you to set the table it's time for a meal and she said why why would i do that there is no food charles there's no food he said daisy set the table so She set the table, and then they sat there. And after a while, there was a knock on the door, and they answered the door, 
And one of their neighbors said, you know, we cooked way too much food and we can't store this. Can we share it with you? He said, well, yes, you can. Thank you. And they sat down and had a good meal together. He always, always believed that God would provide, that God was faithful and God would see us through. He lost two daughters. He lost his wife. But even when they were in Philadelphia, there was still so much racial prejudice. He was a, a community pillar, and he stood up for the evil, injustice, and oppression. Remember our baptismal vows, right? We will reject evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. And he was a leader in the community, helping people to, to stand up to those institutional systems that kept black people down. They couldn't start businesses because they didn't have capital. They couldn't buy homes because they didn't have capital. And so he rallied his church and began the Calvary Savings and Loan Association. And they gave mortgages to families and they provided startup funds for businesses so that they, they could build up the community so that they could strengthen the people so that they could live in that abundant life that God has planned for all people. He, he took his faith and he lived it out boldly. And even, even when the church, the church undermined his work, yet he knew God was faithful and he proclaimed that. And so he, he was called the prince of preaching. He was such a powerful orator. And his sermons were so inspirational that at the time of his death, his, his congregation that began with 130 when he was appointed there had over 12,500 members. He was a powerful preacher. And not only that, he wrote these hymns to go with his sermons. The, the hymns and the music, he wasn't... He wasn't formally trained in music. He couldn't read music. He couldn't write the music, but he could play it. He composed it. He created the songs. And, and you can just imagine him preaching that sermon and, and grasping your attention and, and wrestling with the tough issues of the day and then sitting down to the keyboards to sing about those trials that we'll be facing, about, about the challenges of everyday life and how you can just take it to the altar, just take it and leave it there, that God is faithful and God is just, and we can live our lives freely and fully because God is the source of our salvation. There's nothing in this world that's going to fill that place that God fills. And when we have that relationship, then we can leave it all. Just take every burden, every challenge that you face, and leave it there. And know that God is faithful, and God will lead you to a better place. You can feel the pain of the hymns. You can feel the pain of his life in the verses, but you can also hear the hope of his faith in the choruses. Our lives are so much richer because of the life of Charles Albert Tinley. He uh, died in 1933, and shortly after, they renamed the congregation to Tinley Temple, the new building that they had built. It's Tinley Temple, and it was put on the National Historic Registry in um, 2011. 
just a few years ago. And so I just want to lift that up. So if you're ever going on one of those tours where you go to Philadelphia and you see the Liberty Bell and different things like that, go by and see Tendley Temple in Philadelphia and remember this remarkable man and the power of his faith to touch lives and to change our world. Will you join me in a prayer? Loving God, we, we do thank you for your servant, Charles Albert Tendley. We thank you for the way that you gave to him such power of faith and such eloquence of speech and such a gift in music that even today we are blessed by the legacy he has given to us. And God, we recognize that in our world there are so many things that distract us away from you. And we apologize for those times when we have let something get between us and you, when we have allowed distractions to turn our feet away from the path you have laid before us. We apologize for those times when some small inconvenience has caused us to grumble or to doubt your faithfulness. And we thank you that you forgive us and call us home. We ask that you would help us this week then to be very faithful, to walk closely with you each day, to open our lives to you in little and big ways so that every day we are useful to you in building up your holy realm in our world. And all of this we pray in the name of Jesus and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. So our next hymn is uh, Leave It There. And it is a him that helps us to remember that always, always, there's nothing too big or nothing too small. Every burden can be entrusted to the care of God who will lead us to a better life. As you're able, let's stand and join in singing our hymn.